Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. So this week, Laura and I have taken a detour to Texas, where we've had the honor to be guests on a great podcast called Texas Wine and True Crime. We hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for being here, friends, for the beginning of Season 3, Episode 1, The Stiletto Murder. Thank you to all of you winos and crimos out there for supporting the show. You can find us on Buy Me a Coffee or Kofi. You can buy us a glass of wine or two, or you can become a member of Winos and Crimos and help keep the decanter full each and every episode. In fact, since we are starting our swag shop soon on the near horizon, our members will be getting exclusive access to merch before anyone else. So jump on Kofi and join us there. And don't forget, we've got our happy hour murder hour coming up every last Thursday of the month. This month, we are talking John Benet Ramsey. If you need a link to this Zoom, you need to go ahead, jump on our website, click on exciting news, fill out the information just to make sure you get a Zoom link. You guys aren't gonna miss this one. We actually have someone on that was hired by Patsy Ramsey for her first job. So she's really going to give us a lot of input on the mom and the perspective of just how she felt for this case. So don't wanna miss that, get that on your calendars. And of course, if you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple, give us five stars because it only helps. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button while you're there. Okay, so the crime for this week is the case of Anna Trujillo out of Houston, Texas. The wine for this week comes from our friends at Valley Mills Vineyards. Valley Mills is a new one for us. Today I am sipping on a Sensot Rosé. This dry crisp rosé shows notes of fresh melon and grapefruit. And of course hang out to the end with us so you can hear our wine rating and review. Guys, do I have a treat for you today? Joining me for our season opener are two ladies that are rocking the true crime circuit with their podcast, Ivy League Murders. I want to give a warm welcome to my Boston friends, terrible accent, Laura Rodriguez McDonald and Sarah Alcorn. Welcome, ladies, and thank you for being here with me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brandy. Great to be here. Great to be here. Yeah, so fun. So I'm in Texas. You're up in Boston, the magic of the internet. This is fun stuff, right? I know, <laughs> and we can see you. Yes, and we're looking at each other. I know, it's so, this is fabulous. This is I, so and, fun. And I have to say this, I, I was thinking to myself this morning, I was thinking, this is Texas, 
go big or go home. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Everything is bigger in Texas. That's like right. The food, the drinks. <laughs> you guys are like your own nation. And this know? crime yeah. is big. This is a big crime. It is a very big, big, big crime. Yeah. yeah. It's funny you say we are like this nation because I just read that when Texas gained its independence, there's actually something written that we can go into five different states if we wanted to. We could actually turn Texas into five different states. That's how large Texas is. Wow. We actually research all the time and we're big researchers and I've never seen a crime like this before or a weapon like this before. Yes. So we had to go to Texas for this one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Our Boston friends are in Texas for this one. Okay, ladies, are you ready to sip some wine and talk some crime? We are, but we are actually sipping uh, Diet Coke today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You're sipping my second favorite beverage, Diet Coke. <laughs> Ladies, let's get into this week's case. So as we mentioned, friends, we are talking about the case of Anna Trujillo out of Houston, Texas. So ladies, you've listened to this show before. We do facts about the cities that our crimes take place. Sometimes they're useful facts. Sometimes they're just not so useful. But just to give our little listeners an idea about what's going on in Houston. So for number one, I chose the first Houston Marathon was run on December 30th, 1972, and had just over 100 runners. The 2014 Marathon had nearly 13,000 runners. The Houston Marathon can also be used as a time qualifier for the Boston Marathon. Wow. wow. I never knew that. That's very cool. I did not know that. And that's through the whole Boston thing for y'all. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, more than 40 million passengers pass through Houston's George Bush International Airport's gates annually, making it the 28th busiest airport in the world. United Airlines alone has more than 800 daily departures. Now, I have to say, this is probably a pre-COVID fact, because I don't think they're doing 800 in a day right now. So, no. yeah, doubtful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done my time in that airport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like the good old days. These are the good old day facts. All right. And number three, Houston is the nation's third most humid city, followed by New Orleans, which comes in first, and Jacksonville, which is second. Wow. Yeah, it's disgusting there. <laughs> it really is. It's just, it's just, it's wet. It's just, I have a lot of family in Houston and we go often. Well, not since COVID, but ugh, it's just, you either get in the pool or you just have to stay in the air conditioning. That's just the way it is in Texas when the humidity is just bad. Sure. It's a big Boston thing. No matter what the weather, you have to complain about it. Even if it's a nice day when it shouldn't be, it's global warming. It's like you can't enjoy it no matter what. So we just love complain. It. Yeah, we just complain. Complain about Boston. everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Okay, guys, on the evening of June 9th, 2013, 45-year-old Anna Trujillo and her 59-year-old on-again, off-again boyfriend, Stefan Anderson, were seen sipping wine, shooting tequila, and creating a mild scene at the bar. They returned to Stefan's high-rise apartment, and just hours later, Stefan is found by police bloody and deceased. What happened to Stefan Anderson? Okay, ladies, this was a big case, not only in Texas, but it became national news within 24 hours of the murder. Not only because of the type of crime it was, which is a woman killing a man, which we know is an unusual type of crime already, but because of the unusual weapon used in the crime. And that, my friends, was a size nine, five and a half inch blue suede, close toe, $1,500 pair of Manolo Blahnik stiletto heels. 
So how did Stefan and Anna meet? And what happened to Stefan to basically someone bludgeon him and stab him to death with a five and a half inch stiletto heel? By the way, which reminds me of an ice pick. Yes, very yes, much so. I, I mean, I have a similar one right here. I have a Louboutin, and yes. uh, it is. I mean, it's deadly. It is. It, uh, it's deadly. Uh, yeah. Somebody actually posted that their Walmart high heel would never have done that. <laughs> oh well, I can see in, my, I mean, in mine right here, you can see. I mean, there's a steel in order yeah. to, this is a. It would cause some serious damage. Right, there, there's a steel yes. bar going through here. Yeah. So, so it is a weapon. Used as a weapon, clearly. So let's kind of talk about how these two actually met. They were a very unlikely pair. They actually had this encounter in the lobby of his condo, right? So Anna was actually staying in his condos with another man, and she just happens to be in the lobby and run into Stefan. So these two are pretty much polar opposites. He's very educated. She is uneducated. She jumps job to job to job. He has a very stable career. She was a little loud, a little out there, very wanted to be seen type of woman. And he was sort of the opposite, sort of quiet, kind of reserved, very kind, very generous. But they've had one thing in common, ladies, and that was their love of booze. Yes, yes. They both like to drink. And we'll get into later what happened that night and how alcohol probably played a major role in this codependency relationship, which is kind of what I believe was the downfall for Stefan, what he was really looking for versus what he got in return for that love he wanted. But again, really different. Stefan had been married once before, but she had been married twice, divorced twice, married out of high school, had two girls out of high school. It was also said that she had raised some of her brothers and sisters growing up. So her independence, I would say, is something probably inside of her she never felt like she really had. So after her second marriage, she sort of just went off the rails. She came from a really religious family. She kind of turned into more, you know, testing the waters a little bit with different religions, tarot cards, witchcraft. She was raised as a very strict Jehovah's Witness. And so it seemed as though she loved the bars, right? She loved the clubs. She loved the men. She just liked the attention. So it's almost kind of like this midlife crisis thing she might be kind of dealing with. What do you guys think? Well, I read the book Possessed by Catherine Casey on this case, and I highly recommend it. Stefan, like you said, was a very sort of quiet. He studied science and yeah. you know, biochemistry. Biochemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was from Sweden. He was from Sweden. He grew up in Sweden. Yep. And he was from an abusive household. He had a very abusive father. Working class. His father had worked for the trains. Yeah. And his father was not very supportive of him. No. I think Stefan had also had a series of sort of failed relationships, whether he was focusing too much on work or not, or what have you. And like you said, I think booze for both of them just were interwoven into their lives. And so I think it's one of these situations where opposites may be attracted a little bit here. And plus, they Mm -hmm. were both at a place in their life where they kind of didn't know what they were looking for. But they were both of their own kind of not Miss Wright and Mr. Wright, but Mr. Right now and Miss Right now. Mr. Right now. I don't really think they had almost anything in common except for their love of alcohol. I mean, I think I, that, I agree yeah, with that. And I think that really did disrupt his previous relationships because he had relationships with other women who liked to hike and do other things. And he liked to go to bars. That's what he liked to do. Yeah. And yeah. she liked to go to bars. They were drinking buddies. And she was almost a transient. She kind of went from place to place and 
I think as her behavior started to get a little more out there and bizarre, he picked up on that relatively quickly and then couldn't get rid of her. But I think that their relationship completely was based around alcohol. Yeah, I mean, her lifestyle was very much, she would find rich older men to support her, and then she would find younger guys to entertain her, let's say. And she also had a daughter at this point who, as far as I can see in the book, she did not take care of really. Anna, as they call her in the book, was she didn't come from a broken family. She actually came from a fairly decent family. Her, her mother yep. was very hardworking, very strong family ethics. So why she took this path, I'm not quite sure. One thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, she does dabble in witchcraft. She does. There are several people in the book who kind of observe bizarre things that happen around her. So that's something I kind of wanted to throw out there. Is she is she dabbling in something dark that's bigger than in in any case, I don't know, but that's something I wanted to I think part of the there. fascination with the case is I think a stiletto or a shoe just kind of epitomizes females and our sexuality and who we are as women. And when that gets used as a weapon, that's really what kind of made oh. this case so mm-hmm. interesting. There's no doubt. I mean, if, if she had shot him. We would not be talking about this case right now. The media picked up on this immediately and said, this is a, quote, sexy murder because of the stiletto. And sex sells, right? Sex always sells. Oh, definitely. So the media picked up on it. I mean, once the media hit, it was just, I was reading just so much about the media just portraying her as this you're right. It's a stiletto heel. It's not a natural thing, right? And we'll talk about that when the cops get on site, they want to know where the weapon is. And so there was just this fascination, I think, with a woman, maybe some felt like she had defended herself. Maybe some felt like she had to do this, but I like that you read that book. So that's fantastic. Listeners, definitely pick that up and check that out. And we're going to be talking about some of her behavior around the witchcraft. There are people who did say she would lose voodoo dolls often and they would have to go and help her look for them or she would go up to someone right and just start not even talking in tongues but just like gibberish or put spells on them and she was scaring a few people during this time right and then when you're putting alcohol alcoholism because there were reports that she was very off the rails with her alcohol abuse that just sort of fuels everything right which we'll kind of see which actually fueled the murder but it's really funny brandy because at a certain point i was reading the book and i call laura and i'm like oh crap we're going on wine and crime like we're gonna have to address the alcohol issue (laughs) (laughs) so we're glad that you're so you know we're like we don't want to uh it's also important to add that she smoked spice which is the chemical marijuana and which is illegal, but yes. often, especially then, it wasn't really controlled well when it first came on the market. So you it was con- it was actually sold in Seven Elevens in here in Texas. Yes. Oh man, yeah. because it wasn't you know when it first came out, they really didn't know mm-hmm. what it was in. It was sold in New York too. People had hallucinations, yep. and I mean there were all kinds of people acted violently, and she smoked that pretty heavily. Definitely could have been a contributing factor in the crime. You know why she smoked that, though? Because when she would apply for jobs, they'd test for marijuana. There's no test for spice. She was actually arrested twice for driving under the influence. I believe one of those times she was driving the wrong way on a major freeway or an intersection. So going the wrong way, almost had an accident. And it was said at the time when they met, they were sort of in their full-blown drinking days. 
right? That he was into going to the bars and drinking and so was she. So again, like you said, it's almost like a match made in not heaven, like a drinking buddy, like right, someone right, who yeah. you can trust to be yourself on booze. It never works out, ladies. It just never works out for that, nah, for that sort no. of thing. But I think mm -hmm. for Stefan, mm -hmm. he still held down really good jobs. He was getting promoted. Yes. He still had his life together. Maybe alcoholic, maybe not, but at least very high functioning. And that was, you know, I just want to right. make that clear. Paul was kind, very kind to people. Very oh, not, yeah. not an angry drunk. He yeah. just liked to go out and have drinks and socialize. And, and his and friends yeah. and people around him were warning him about it. Oh, yeah. People saw the signs of her behavior. And yeah people around him and his peers and his bar friends, I think he was somewhat of a bar fly, were warning yeah. him, you know, she's bad news. Well, you know, people cared about him because the University of Houston sent him to rehab for a couple of months to help him. And yes. he went. And so things were improving. You can tell he was just very cared about. Yes. And we'll talk about what her story was, what happened that night. I always say when you have this case where it's one word against another, right, you're the only two people there. You're the only two people that know what happened. There's always ways to find out what really happened. So we'll talk about surveillance. We'll talk about just their characters, their character right. witnesses for both of them. Okay, so like we said, these two had an immediate connection together. And I think for her, he, like you said, Sarah, he has money, right? She's in this nice condo building. She runs it to him. I think her assumption was that he's older, he's good looking, he has money. That's something that I look for, right? That I'm not me personally, but <laughs> me as the honor trio. That's something that her friends did say was that she was sort of looking for that connection, looking to be taken care of couldn't really take care of herself all the time type of thing. Like you said, kind of went from man to man. And we know she stayed at a hotel for quite a while. The manager of the hotel actually became close to her, had conversations with her. And he really actually came forward and talked to the police about a lot of information that he had, just her comments. In fact, when he heard on television that someone had died by a stiletto heel, he actually figured it was her. And he told wow. the police that once they found out where she was staying, and investigating, the manager said, I saw it on the news and I knew it was her. That's so crazy. Yeah, so crazy. So they're attracted to each other. You know, these two, like we mentioned, are drinking buddies, but they just really weren't a good match. Some people said that she liked the finer things in life, even though she couldn't afford the finer things in life, like a $1,500 pair of stiletto heels, right? That she claims he had a fetish for, that he bought for her, that he wanted her to wear because he liked his women in stilettos. Was there anything in the book about truth around that? Yeah, I think that she was a stiletto wearer way before this. She would go to events and I believe she was in stilettos and she would be almost naked with like band-aids over her nipples and the G-string and be painted like a snake with long oh. stiletto shoes. I think that comes from her, frankly, the okay. uh, stiletto fetish. I think that's from her, basically. Yeah, because in the book, I can't recall, but I don't think it's mm -hmm. never really mentioned about him. So but I, I think, think she's sexy. And I think that, you know, oh, yeah. that's what she's offering him. I mean, I yeah. think that's the sure. attraction. 
they're drinking buddies, but she has, you know, kind of a raw sexuality that she's definitely the attraction to mm -hmm. It's kind of opposite of him. You know, she's really outgoing, seems a little right. louder. A lot of quiet guys might be attracted to that. Oh, definitely. Sexy and, and looks good and yeah. outgoing and, and, and I like think he party. Like yeah. Right. And I think he genuinely liked her in the beginning. And I think like a lot of people, she's sort of had this sort of superficial charm in many ways. It's like, oh, it's fun. She's hot. She dances yeah. on the table. But I think that wears off for him and a lot of people yeah. with her. Her behavior was really crazy and erratic. Even with good friends, there's one guy who was friends with her who said that she bites him. I think she bites him on the head. Like, yes. you know, she bites him really hard, like leaves like imprints She was living on with them. She was living right. with them. And, and, uh, it's and like, then the girlfriend beats her up. And what? that plays into the trial into the la later. And we'll, yes. we'll, we can talk about yeah, that. She but. had very erratic, some semi-violent behavior, which will come into play later at the trial. I think that her crazy shows up fairly quickly in the relationship and becomes an outweigh. Yeah. Well, and also it kind of goes into Stefan's bruises, right? People do claim to have seen him bruised up from yes. time to time and ask him what happened, you know, what's going on? And he would just brush it off or just say he fell or had an accident. And men abuse from women is real, right? I mean, this is a clear case of this. I mean, we'll talk about the erratic behavior and everything she showed from the interrogation room to the trial and to just this craziness that she displayed in a monologue that just never seemed to end. Yes. But but she rarely ever mentioned him and actually what happened. It was just more of this like ongoing or, or, or any concern about him. The fact that he was dead, essentially. But you, you know? almost get an impression, I think, of the whole relationship. And I I mean, maybe we've all known people in, I mean, not to this extreme in relationships like this, but just the drinking, the fighting, the back, the forward, the abuse. Mm -hmm that just whole erratic, irrational cycle that people can get into in really sure. dysfunctional relationships. And I think you see that with them. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that was said in the book is like, because he had had such an abusive father, yeah. that Stefan was like, I will never, ever hit a woman. I will never. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I think that the key thing that hit me about this case, Brandy, is that when it, typically in a domestic violence situation, you have a man who abuses and then eventually takes the life of, of the mm -hmm. woman. In this case, it's the woman who's the abuser, and she's the one who eventually takes the life of a male. But what we tend to think is, what did he do to her to deserve that? And it's this double standard I think we have. Because it is a real thing. Men are abused sometimes. And you know? I don't think he ever defended himself because he had that vow he made to himself to never, ever strike mm -hmm. a woman because he had grown up and watched his father abuse his mother yeah. and vowed to never harm a woman. Even up until the day of the crime, we read about this, that he just didn't do anything. No, never defended himself. Never defended himself. No. We'll talk about that. Guys, did you even read about his friend that came forward and said they were having lunch together and she walked in the restaurant and just said nothing and went over to Stefan and bit him yes, yeah, at yes. the table? In front and of then his friend, yeah. In front of his friend. That's some pushing the envelope behavior to walk into a public place oh, and just she, go over and bite someone. She would publicly humiliate him. She mm -hmm. would have another guy. She'd be all over another guy in public and be like, oh, you're better in bed than, than him. Like, really, like, 
very into publicly humiliating him, and he took it. Well, I mean, eventually he wants to get away from her. Of course. You know, yes. and, and can't. Yes. I, mean, I think he starts to believe, like, this girl is not for me. Right. This is not something that I want. So it even comes to the point, right, where the management of the condo is like, she's got to go. Yeah. She's causing a ruckus. People are complaining. She's screaming. There's obviously something going on. They're like, she's got to go. She can't live here. And he asks them to like, please don't let her in at one point. She cuts the uh, hose to the dishwasher at one point to piss him off and floods the apartment. Right. And which causes causes a problem for the management. And then she's causing all these scenes. And right. Finally, the management just says we can't have her here anymore. It's like enough's enough. She changed the locks. I think he was starting to take the actions of getting her out of his life. He is starting to be proactive and to start to do some things, but she's aggressive. And by the way, too, he's met somebody else at this point, too. He's met a woman who is, well, she's sane. (laughs) <laughs> that's British. important <laughs> not, it's not the bar isn't too high yeah, yeah really <laughs> but he's he's beginning to be involved with this other woman in fact she sadly the day after he's murdered they had had plans to like meet for lunch and she's texting him going hey where are you i guess your plans fell through yeah. tragically in any case but he is trying to separate himself out but the truth on a at this time, at the time of the murder, nobody else wanted her. Nobody, she was kicked out of every other place, every other opportunity. He basically took pity on her and took her in for one more night. She was supposed to get a ride to Waco, which is where she was from. She was from Waco, Texas. And he was like, okay, one more night, like sleep on the couch kind of thing. I don't think it's what she presented, which is he's obsessed with me. He's, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm his fiance. According to the book, he was basically taking pity on her for that one night. Yeah. And he actually remembered the extended vacation she took to Mexico. Her family's from Mexico. They moved to Waco, Texas, but she took an extended vacation to Mexico. He actually helped pay for that vacation because that was sort of his way to get her out of there, to kind of get her out of his hair, to kind of, he had changed the locks. He had already asked her to leave. The drinking, they said, was getting better for him. He seemed happier. He seemed more interactive with colleagues and friends. So there was this positive spin when she was out of the picture and then she comes back, right? The vacation doesn't last forever. She comes back from Mexico and completely starts stalking him. She's showing up at all of his local Mm -hmm. places. Like you said, Sarah causing a scene, yelling obscenities at him. And he does absolutely nothing about this, right? So she's torturing this poor guy. It's just really sad, but he was doing well, but then she's back. And okay, ladies, it's now time for a wine recess. This is your first wine recess with Texas Wine and True Crime. I don't know if you want to tell everybody about your yummy Diet Coke you're drinking, (laughs) but I am going to tell people about this yummy rosé that I'm drinking. Yes, go for it. (laughs) So normally I've got like some cheeses to talk about and some other like figs. I'm usually trying to eat and drink while we do this, but today... I'm just floating on some rosé today. But guys, this vineyard, Valley Mills, is who I met when we did our live show. And they have this dry rosé. People always use it to that rosé that's kind of sweet on the sweeter side, more of a summer refreshing type of rosé. But this one is a little bit drier. It's still got that sweetness. I definitely taste the melon in it. 
And I do believe it is $27 on their website. So Valley Mills Vineyards. And I'll talk about, um, friends, I will talk about this vineyard um, towards the end of the show. But I'm going to highly recommend this one. If you're a rosé drinker, if you just like a little, it's not so sparkling like a Prosecco that we always enjoy. This is definitely more on the drier side, a lot less sweet, but it's good. So friends, if you like a rosé, I highly suggest that you check out our friends at Valley Mills Vineyards. They are in Valley Mills, Texas, not far from Waco, I found out. So I will definitely be um, checking them out on my next little road trip. I am going to be going to Austin this next weekend. So it's crazy. I haven't been to Austin, Texas in like, I don't know, before COVID. And I have to go four times in the next like two months. Wow. So I'm like, I know, I'll get on my Austin. Because Brandy, you're going to Crime Con. That's what I'm going heard. to Crime Con. Nice. I'm going. I'm so excited. Y'all is- have to come. Are y'all? I know. Gonna- it's we're, so much we're, fun. We're looking into it, and yeah. we're, we're looking at uh, London too. So maybe we'll. Maybe uh, oh yeah. Are they? Is London going to allow us in? Us I don't know. <laughs> maybe we'll all go to London in September. I've been to London three times, and I would go for a fourth. So you yes, just, we I love see. London. You just let me know. But this wine is great for our listeners. So they're all yeah, absolutely. Learn. So we're going to encourage all of our listeners to pick up the wine. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, yeah, check them out. Yeah. I've got a friend from Sonoma who's actually speaking in Austin. So that's who I'm going to go visit. And he has a podcast about wine and he talks about wine and he's just good at wine. So I learned a whole lot from him. And so do our listeners. All right. Well, do you guys have anything to add for the wine recess or should we get back to the case? Do you want us to talk about the Diet Coke? Because we can weigh in. I, you know, do I'm they fun. need marketing help, really? Do I know, mean? really. I live for Diet Coke. I don't think they need any of my help. I don't know. I feel like today's Diet Coke is a little bit, I don't know. It's a little flat. It's always perfect. <laughs> <laughs> a little flat. <laughs> let's get back to uh, murder. Uh, yeah. All right, ladies, let's get back to this case. I just wanted to add that, you know, Stefan was just a really great guy, mild-mannered guy. You know, he had moved to Houston because Sweden is so dark. And he really moved there because he loved the sunshine. He liked to be outside. It was warm. He liked people. He was just like a really good soul. So the whole story is such a tragedy. One of the stories in the book that just absolutely endeared me to him you know, a lot of homeless in Houston. Mm -hmm. And he would not only go and like give people money and give them something to eat, but he would actually go, he would talk to people. He had a humanity. Yeah, and I just want to highlight that because, you know, really bring about his humanity, you know, because he really was, there was really something special. But uh, but actually, Mm -hmm. Anna would do the same thing. An interesting parallel that they had as well. I think they both had giving spirits. He did for sure, right? He was in Dallas first, and then he took a job in Houston. So he had a high paying job in Dallas. And then that's when he left and took the job at the University of Houston. So when she was younger, would have to help with the family dynamic, right. help take care. You have to be a giver and, and have feelings yeah. for that, right? You do, That just doesn't happen naturally. And, and she was a lot younger. And so I do think when we said that they didn't have much in common, I do think there was that giving underlying spirit. He probably wanted that to shine in her. I think, you know, he really wanted to bring that back out of her and and help her. I think that was a big part of this for him is, you know, we always say we can't change people, but maybe he felt deep down he could help her. And maybe in turn, she could help him with some of the things that he was dealing with. So she's back. She's stalking him. She is going to his hangouts. He's trying to get better. So eventually he kind of just you fall back into the alcohol, you fall back into the relationship, you fall back into the communication, 
it's just sort of this whirlwind that he just ends up back in with her. And like you said, Sarah, there's this one last night together, right? So let's kind of talk about that night and what happened. So around 2 a.m., Houston 911 gets a phone call from Anna at the condo saying that he attacked me. I hit him. There's different things that she says on the 911 call. She says something about doing CPR on him. Now, remember, this is now her story. We're going to tell this from Anna's perspective because at this time he is deceased. And so this is basically what she's telling the police when they arrive. They arrive. His face is almost recognizable. He had been what they thought was originally a gunshot. He was so bloody in the face. They thought a gun had to do this, right? Or some other weapon. The cop asks her, where is the weapon. What happened to him? And she basically says, I killed him with my shoe, or I hit him with my shoe, right? They're kind of taking a look at the crime scene. They're asking Anna, you know, different questions about what happened that night. So she basically says that he grabs me. <laughs> By the way, Stefan was a wrestler. Was that in the book? He was a big wrestler, I think, when he was yes. younger. Yeah. And so she brings that up. And says that I couldn't have overpowered him. He was a wrestler. He had me by my shoulders. He knew what he was doing. He threw me over the couch. He threw me over the wall. He had me pinned down. And the next thing I know, he's choking me and I have to react. So my reaction was to grab my shoe and just start swinging and swinging and swinging until he fell off of me. Right. So she didn't know she had killed him, according to her. Is that the impression you ladies got? What I read in the book is that around 2 a.m., a neighbor hears a very loud thump and she sort of notes it and then she hears yelling. And then about an hour later, I think Anna calls the police and says the statement about the police ask what happened. And she says, you know, he's lying on the ground. He's not responding. He was grabbing me. I was trying to get away. I tried to do CPR. By the time the police arrive, and that's very quickly after the yes. call, they notice that he's on his back, he's in the apartment, and that the blood is like coagulating around him. He's totally unresponsive at this point. He has multiple, they think he's shot or something. Yes. He has been beaten beyond recognition. You know, she says, oh, can't you do CPR? Can't you do CPR? And the guy who responds sort of looks at her like he smells heavy alcohol from her. He's like, can't you see? Like, the yeah. guy is dead, basically. And that was an issue at trial, actually, for her defense attorney. So they take her in, and her clothes are covered in blood. And we can talk about some of her bruising, because that's also an issue at trial. But those bruises are actually from a prior fight that she had had mm -hmm. with the two people that she was living with a couple of weeks before they also notice that the blood splatter is very low next to his body, which basically tells them that he was hit at a low place. And they basically surmise that she was probably sitting on top of him, straddling him when she hit him, which means that that's why the blood splatter is so low. Right, even because even cast, cast, cast off cast blood. Off, so yeah. she was hitting him in a low place on the floor, which is why the cast off is low, which is where she would have been standing up, it would have been higher. Right. Which just means that her story doesn't make sense. Right. Also, this comes out in trial, right? The, the it prosecution does. does a full blown on dummy experiment with the blood splatter pictures next to the body. Sure. It all, 
it all comes out of trial, but the police notice it right away. Yep. And they also notice, I mean, it's, you know, self-defense is one thing, but this is absolute overkill. I mean, yeah. you don't need to pummel someone to that extent, that many wounds. 25 of them to the right. face, to the, you right. know, to the I hand, mean, to the arms. Yep. It's not getting somebody off of you. It's, I mean, it's yeah. decimating somebody. It's rage. That's a rage killing. It's a rage killing. But earlier in that night, he had been driven home by a, a female cab driver who was with yes. her husband, who would accompany her so that she would be safe when she took fares late at night. And the woman, can't remember her name, Gonzalez, I think is her last name. She was so worried about Stefan, given Anna's behavior in the cab. She was screaming. She was, she was just like vicious. And the cab driver was so shaken by this that she pulls Stefan aside and says, you need to get away from this woman. Do you understand? Like she says, do you mind if I pray for you? He's an atheist. And he's like, okay, sure. Like say a yeah. prayer for me. Like that's the level of like, this was very damning t- testimony for a Very damning. And the, and the, the husband of the cab driver is in the cab when all of this is going on. And he says to Stefan, like, aren't you going to say something? Are you just going to sit there and take it? And it kind of goes back to the idea of now we know he didn't really fight back. He really never put up a fight. And if this is so obvious that somebody wants to pray for you, even tells you, I'll take you somewhere else. You don't have to stay here. I'll drop you off. Yeah, she was highly, highly concerned. And guys, this is the cab that they took when they found out once the investigation begins, going back to the trace evidence of the video surveillance, which we'll talk about. They enter the cab after they leave this bar and then they're dropped off. And then just a few hours later is when when the police show up on the scene. But yeah, that's... If somebody was that afraid for me, I don't know. And he just kept saying, I'm okay. It's going to be okay. We're I, can gonna ha- be okay. I can handle her yeah, for one more I, night. I, I can handle her for one more night. Yep. I think she was, you know, so erratic, almost expected that. And he never thought that it would ever go to that level of violence. Right. There was just no expectation that she would ever be violent. So I think he thought he could handle it. And the three long hours that she was in the interrogation room, friends there is video of that if you want to go and check that out she is basically questioned and she talks about her entire life she talks about the abuse she's clearly smells of alcohol she's clearly hungover i do believe this was in the very early morning hours of that next day so three hours they're talking to her and She basically claims, like I mentioned, he throws her around, he's choking her. This is what she's telling the police in the interrogation room, right? They brought her now to the station. They have the weapon. They know who did it. They don't know why she did it. So now they're trying to figure all of that out. So she's down there being interrogated three hours. She goes on and on and on, but she doesn't have a mark on her. We talked about the bruises that she had before. And she's like, yeah, I have these bruises. No, there was an actual scratch on her, a bruise on her, a mark on her that they could identify that was fresh enough to be caused by Stefan. And for that reason, they put handcuffs on her and put her in jail. Because I'll add too that all the blood that they found on her was all male blood, Stefan's blood, blood, not her blood. Right. And for someone to be throwing around as vicious as she said, and we'll talk about how vicious this was because she got a little vicious in the courtroom on her attorney trying to act this craziness out. But yeah, it was uh, for the kind of fight that she claimed she had to put up She didn't have a mark on her, but she bails out of jail, but she's arrested. She's put in jail. She bails out and they put her on house arrest. 
And so now we're into the investigation of this murder, right? Now we're talking about one word against someone who's no longer here to give their word. And so what do they have to do? They have to start investigating and backtracking everything. They do find the cab driver. They speak with her and the husband, let them know what they saw and explain what happened that night. They look at the video surveillance from the actual bar where they were. They were seen drinking heavily. Right. This is a blow to her credibility, too, because she Mm -hmm. says, oh, all night I was wanting to leave the bar and he wouldn't leave and he was forcing me to stay. And uh, the video surveillance just completely undermines that. She is dancing with this guy, that guy drinking like a fish. It doesn't shore up her story of like she wanted to go home. I don't think she has a great relationship with the truth. (laughs) (laughs) She also says that that he's mad and they're fighting because he was jealous. Right. Because she's flirting and the surveillance doesn't show that either. Right. No. He doesn't care that, you know. Yeah. He's actually just sitting there. The surveillance shows him just being chill. And so she does say that he got up and went in and out three times because he wasn't ready to leave. And I had to go meet my daughter that day. And he was basically doing everything that she was basically doing. So once they saw the surveillance video, they thought, okay, he's clearly not erratic. He's clearly not yelling at her. He's clearly not pulling on her arm and dragging her out of this place. This video surveillance didn't help her much, (laughs) very much at all. Let's talk about the video, the surveillance in the lobby of the condo. So Stefan and Anna are seen in the video of the condo. From what I looked at of the video, they look very calm. It's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of odd. I have a theory. I have a theory. What's your theory? theory? I'm interested to hear your theory. Okay, my theory is that she's been already been kicked out of this place once. She can't raise a stink. She can't walk in this place raising a stink. She doesn't want to be kicked out and have to leave. This is a condo that has a management 24-7 that you have to sign in. That's what I think. I think she was on her best behavior walking through the place, and she was waiting to get up there to get back to what she was doing. So that means she's a little more calculated than we think, because, you know, if you can control your behavior that much, then you're a little more more calculated. That is my theory and why she was totally cool walking through there. That makes sense. Just a little note about Anna, too. So she would do these cable TV shows and kind of be the presenter at these cable network shows. And she always liked to be the center of attention. I think part of the choice of the murder weapon Mm -hmm. was that she knew how sensational it would be. And that was one of the things they found in the investigation was it was she had threatened somebody else, like, I'll use my stiletto and pound you with it if you do this or that. This is something that she had thought about before. In the back of my mind, I always think, yeah, she liked to be the center of attention. This garnered a lot of media. What a way to do it. Do you think it was premeditated? I don't know. I don't know. So I mean, she could be she's, a, she's a sick woman, though, man. I, that's all. Yeah, I I'm not say. sure I think it was premeditated, but that is definitely an interesting theory. So I don't know if it was premeditated, but I am kind of curious what you guys think about the death card showing that the police found in the condo when they arrived. So the tarot cards we talked about, she was really into the tarot and they did find a book in her purse. And when they opened it, it showed the death card. And just curious if there was something you read in the book or what you think about the death card. Does the death card mean death? Does it mean the end of something? The death card, what she said about the death card, and this is sort of 
of what I read about tarot stuff is like death is like the ending of something in the beginning of something else. Like even if in a tarot reading, if you pull the death mm -hmm. card, it's more like something is ending for you and something else is beginning kind of thing. It doesn't necessarily okay. mean a literal death. She was creepy. Okay. <laughs> Anna was creepy. And she, she, was, she was dabbling in stuff that I think she had a neighbor at one point who said, she was just super bad energy. I'd look at her house. All the crows had like settled on her house. And he said, I saw like a, a like a dark demon kind of form. Now, who knows? People said like really crazy things. And she would sort of put little put curses on people. Your family's going to die. You're going to die. I, I don't know. I don't know how much I believe in that kind of stuff. And Laura's giving me the total hairy eyeball over here. But the, it, but it, it, when you, I think when you invite that kind of darkness in, you, that darkness will find you. Yeah, you she know? definitely dabbled in some darks in the dark side, you know. And yeah. I don't necessarily believe in all that, but I think she she believed in it, and and that definitely does invite in a lot of negative energy. And I agree. She, and she invoked that. And uh, and that's that is it is very creepy. It is creepy. She scared a lot of people. She you really know, did. I mean, she when did. we talk about the trial, when we get to talk about the trial. There were a lot of people who took the stand and just said, man, she would. The, the things that she would tell the police that were happening to her, those actually happened to them, you know, unprovoked attacks. Um, just curses, spells that she would shout out at people. And that would, I mean, if that would scare me, somebody, somebody yelled a spell out at me. I'm like, oh shit, what's going to happen to me today? <laughs> yeah. Right. And we should probably address at some point. I mean, her behavior during the trial was completely inappropriate. Oh. inappropriate. Oh my God. I yeah. mean, when they showed the surveillance tape of um, her in the bar during the trial, she's almost like dancing along to the music, which is and smiling and there smiling, were for smiling like she was enjoying it. And I mean, that just shows a real detachment from reality. I, yeah. I've actually only seen that in one other trial, which is the Diane Downs trial, um, who maybe someone's. Some people may be familiar with that from the Anne Rule book, uh, Small Sacrifices, where she dances along to Hungry Like a Wolf, you know, but it's like, right. she's, yeah. she's like, enjoying the energy, the yeah. energy, she's yeah. like, in a trial for her life. And mm -hmm. she's like, enjoying this, watching herself dancing in a bar with men. And it's like, bizarre but, but you are so detached from reality that's true i think a lot of trials are like theater though a lot of trials are kind of a performance you have the you have the attorneys who are performing to the best of their ability you know and she that yes. was her i'm not surprised by that as nutty as it seems i think she was mm -hmm. kind of like hey look at look at how she was always into like i can get any man i want and I, I'm super sexy and no man can resist me. Like I did that she was that kind of person. So yeah, I, I think you know. it shows a total detachment from from the reality, reality. of where she, where she was yeah. in her life, that she's sitting there on trial for her life. Yes, and no, she's, totally. And she's dancing yeah. along to the music. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, yeah. And the victim who she killed is up there on screen. You know, right. it's like yeah. it's and yeah, the jury is like 
you know, what's going on here? This is crazy. And they did not allow her to take the stand until the sentencing. That's correct. We'll we'll get to that. Yeah. So Jack, Jack Carroll, who was her attorney, it's kind of interesting because I read a lot about Jack and he was very likable by juries. He was tall. He was good looking. People liked him, liked his character. And then he gets matched with her who is not so likable not so, you know, it's all, and he did, her attorney did everything I think he possibly could to get her some salvation, right? Some, something from the jury to just, it, it, they claim self-defense. She's claiming self-defense. He, um, you know, sudden passion murder type of thing, but he, um, just really was going to bat for her. And, but the issue one, like you said, she didn't take the stand in her own trial. Okay. So, but when they would show video of the surveillance and and like you mentioned and things like that, the jury would look at her and she would kind of be grinning, like you said, a little bit of swaying kind of, it was very, she had very odd behavior. Theatrical is a very mild word for what I felt like she put on during the sentencing phase of this trial when she does take the stand. Um, But it was almost like this this attorney, he felt it in his heart that she really, this was self-defense. I mean, I think he... He really did. I mean, he really it, he, did. He really, I feel like he just like sipped the Kool-Aid though a little, you know, I mean... I, he did. I, but, 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 but honestly, with, with, I, I, I almost think he would have maybe had a better case to say she has got severe mental illness and... I mean, that's a tough yeah. road to go down too. I, I, I think also, especially in Texas, especially in Texas, exactly. Mm-hmm. But the, but you know, she look, it maybe he took the right thing. She was five four. She was a woman. You know, here's this big guy. How could you know he? And and here's where here's where our our I think our bias comes in. Oftentimes in cases like this, he must have done something to her to provoke this kind of reaction. You know, and in this case, I don't think so. No, I think it was just a sudden rage killing. I, I think, think it was his lack of reaction. Oh, I yeah. Think, oh, maybe. I actually yeah. think that's a very good point. I think she was looking to fight, looking for reaction. Yes. And when he didn't, she just blew up. And it's a bully, attacked. right? They pick on, they pick on, they right. pick on. Yeah. And they look for a reaction. And when you, I mean, it's. It's like not giving a reaction is is almost more infuriating. And I think yep. she just blew up and just started attacking him. And by the way, she had nothing to lose at this point, you guys. She was facing going home to Waco to live with her family at the age of whatever she was, 43, washed up. Nobody wanted her. You know, she's got nothing to lose at this point. You know, I mean, that is really where she was at her life at the time of the murder as well, you know. So at the trial, right, her attorney, he's going to bat for her. He's trying to convince them it was, you know, just sudden passion. It was it was self-defense. Um, clearly, she hit him 25 times. But, you know, they, the the police and the, and the investigators did say that was overkill, that she didn't necessarily need to hit him 25 times. So the prosecution, like we talked about the blood spatter, they wanted to show that this was not self-defense. 
So that's what they did. They got a mannequin. They went over the mannequin. They had pictures of the blood spatter around the body. They showed what it would be like to go up and down if I was sitting on top of someone or if I was laying underneath somebody right. where the blood spatter would be. And I think this really proved their case. Definitely. Very dramatic. And juries really respond to reenactments. Yes. And and plus, every single witness that they put on the stand said she was violent. She was erratic. She was unstable. She really had nobody in her court no at that witnesses. point. Even her friend Suarez, who was the woman who would hook her up with the cable network stuff, was like shaking on the stand. She was so frightened of Anna. You know, she believed it that she had powers and everything like that. But if that's your strongest witness, you're in trouble. If you're a defendant on a murder case, the shoe at this, you know, the shoes there in the courtroom, the shoe had had its hair on it. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing is a very dramatic, you know, visual statement to the jury. Just the forensics alone didn't bear out her story. As we mentioned, you know, she had had the bruises, but they could show that those bruises had aged, that those were not bruises inflicted at the time of Stefan's murder. And he did his best, her attorney, I think he did his best to convince the jury, but guys, it only actually took less than two hours of deliberation to come back with a guilty verdict of murder. Yeah. So didn't take very long. Jury was not convinced that this was self-defense. So now we're in the punishment phase of this trial. Okay. We mentioned she did not take the stand in her defense during the trial, but she does take the stand and tell her story during the punishment phase. Have you guys watched any of this video, ladies? Have you seen I, some I, of I've this only, video? Well, I've only seen photos, but I, okay. the photos tell a real story. <laughs> but I'm sure the video is much more compelling. <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> so she is basically, oh, I will, because I couldn't stop watching it. And we talk about like her being on the cable, right? And theatrical. We look at the interrogation video of her just flailing her arms, right? Flailing her arms, flailing her legs, just talking about reenacting. And she basically, first of all, I think she was angry at her attorney. She had just been found guilty. She now uses her attorney to pretend he's Stefan to show the court exactly what she had to do in order to defend herself. So she's literally up in her attorney's face, grabbing his hair, pulling him back and forth, side to side. He even grabs her hands at one point, almost like you're hurting me, almost like trying to prevent the pull of his hair. And I feel like when I'm watching this, well, not only do I look at her and think, nut job, crazy, just completely out there and not in reality. She is abusing her attorney in this courtroom. And I kind of feel like I could see the anger she had for men. Yeah, I kind of felt like I'm looking at her. She's already guilty of murder. This is now the punishment phase. She's got to go all out and just show them what she had to deal with. And she, I'm shocked to even let her do that to him. If I can be honest. Well, he probably advised her against it. And, and, you know, what can you do? I mean, she has the right to take this stand if she wants to. And by the way, the pulling of the hair on prior attacks for her, they found clumps of uh, Stefan had white hair at the time. He was 59 at the mm -hmm. time of his death. They found clumps of white hair like on the couch. And she had done this in a prior attack on another person as well. This was her MO to start with mm -hmm. the yanking hair out in fighting. I can't remember who else it was. It was someone else that she had attacked. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely 
crazy. <laughs> so friends out there, if you want to look at this video and check out what happened in the courtroom. So she's telling the story. He knocks her around. She has to defend herself. She takes the hair of the attorney, throws him around a little bit, kind of shows how she was able to wrestle him away a bit. But then he was so overpowering. He takes her to the ground. This went on for seven hours because she was sentenced two days after the verdict. So this is not a very long time in between the guilty verdict and her punishment phase. And she took that stand. Again, we see the dramatic reenactment like she did in the interrogation video, right? It was pretty incredible to watch, I have to say. If well, I, was I know what I'm doing later. <laughs> <laughs> and she's talking while she's doing this, right? She's yeah, speaking, she, right? She's definitely, uh, you know, one of those clients mm -hmm. that's a lawyer's worst nightmare. <laughs> I know. I felt like he believed her. Like, that's the hard part about this, yeah. this attorney. I felt like, uh, I don't know. She's definitely a narcissist who likes oh. to talk about herself. So she's not good on the stand. So she does tell the judge after all of this is over, before the decision actually comes down, she says, quote, it was never my intent. I loved him. I wanted to get away. I never wanted to kill him. So during the closing arguments, um, during the punishment phase, the prosecutor, who was John Jordan, asked jurors for the maximum sentence, which was life in prison. Jordan said Trujillo not only violently killed Anderson, but tried to ruin his character during the trial brought up lots of different things about him, you know, character assassination, somebody's not there to defend themselves. There was no reason for anyone to believe he became this angry, violent man under alcohol when people were just so used to going and having drinks with him and his behavior never really changed. And they had the surveillance to show that that actually was not the case. Jack Carroll asked jurors basically to find his client acting in the heat of passion and to come back with a sentence of two to 20 years. He says, quote, Ms. Trujillo needs mercy right now. During Carol's closing arguments, she started to cry. And this is really, they said, the first time that they actually saw her any emotion out of her when it comes to, you know, my life is now on the line. And um, maybe that was part of the tears. I don't know. But this was one of the first times that they saw her get emotional was during the closing arguments of the penalty phase. But on April 11th, 2014, it takes a jury only four and a half hours to come back with a sentence of life in prison. They did not believe she killed Stefan in sudden passion, but instead in a drunken rage, pinned him down and stabbed him to death with a stiletto heel. Her attorney was actually shocked by this, you guys. He said, quote, she didn't plot to murder the guy. She didn't have any motive to kill him. It was obvious something happened that night between them. If that's not sudden passion, I don't know what is. She seems to have a strange effect on men, and I think she got to her attorney, too. It kind of seems like it. Right? I think maybe, you know, there, she has some charisma with men, and I think she charmed him. Yeah. Because you don't stab someone 25 times in the face. In, right. uh, in, you know, in self-defense. She's in prison for life and well she will deserved. not be eligible. She'll be 75 years old once she's eligible for parole for the very first time. And she'll be wearing flats by then. <laughs> oh, she's in flats. She's in flats already. They're like, no, no, you can't have these in prison. No, 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 no prison, no prison issues to let us. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, those days are over, baby. You know, one thing, I, a couple of things I found very touching in this mm -hmm. case. So this this case kind of broke my heart, I have oh. to say. Mm -hmm. But I one thing is that, that Anna's family, they actually hugged 
Stefan's family afterwards and they were like, we're so sorry. Uh, like they just really beautiful. like, that is you beautiful. know, and the other thing that broke my heart too, was that somebody saw, he was so kind to the homeless people who lived around his building that they see this homeless guy. He takes down the picture on one of like the tree, you know, people do a photo yeah. and, yeah. you know, flowers. And he had taken the photo and he was clutching the photo to his chest and crying. I don't know. It's just, there's something, the guy was a very good guy and he did not deserve this Didn't. at all. And you he know? touched in, in, in his short life and you know, he touched lives. Yeah. And that's how you want to be remembered. And that's how we're remembering Stefan today. And uh, again, this is woman on man violence, which is not common, but it does happen. And I always encourage people go forward anyway, because if something doesn't happen to you, it can happen to someone else. And if you feel people around you, if you're noticing that sort of thing, talk to someone about it, report it. I mean, we talk about so many cases where it was discussed on the outside of where it happened, then something does happen. I mean, look at what the cab driver felt that night. She felt it in her soul to pray for this man who was having to go and, and be with this woman. I mean, she felt something. So I always say, go with your intuition, go with your gut yeah. and speak up because everyone's life matters. And it doesn't matter, you know, what happened that night, she took the life of a very generous and giving man who people will miss. And she is probably where she's supposed to be. So that ladies concludes episode one of season three, Texas wine and true crime. And if you want to, <laughs> if you want to see pictures of this case, you can find them on our Instagram page at Texas wine and true crime. Also our Facebook page, Texas wine and true crime. This has been fabulous, and we will post this all of this so to our Facebook group, Ivy League Murders, and to our social media at Ivy League Murders. Yeah, why don't you tell our friends out there that are listening and never heard of your podcast what you guys talk about? Our podcast is called Ivy League Murders, and we concentrate on cases that happen around academia, especially the eight Ivies. And so we have lots and lots of really juicy cases. A lot of them, I went to Harvard have to do with Harvard, so. <laughs> also a private investigator. I did not go, I went to University of Miami. I did not go to an Ivy League school, but Sarah and I both grew up with parents who worked at Harvard. We, we grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, immersed in the Ivy League. So that's our niche. And we kind of look at the dark side of the hallowed halls of the Ivy League. And we have about 45 episodes and you can find us at Ivy League Murders on, on Facebook, on Instagram, on, on Twitter, Apple, yep. everywhere. Yeah. And uh, we are going to post this episode. We'll post links yes. and we would love to love to hear from you. Yes, guys, check out their podcast. Ladies, I'm just so blessed that I know y'all and met you. We're going to have so much fun going forward talking about cases. I love your podcast. I Ivy League Murdered, that's such a niche, like you said. It's so specific. And I just, some of the stuff you post, I'm like, ooh, ooh. I got to read about that. I got to go check that out. Um, and if you oh. love books, these ladies read a lot of books and talk about a lot of books and have authors on and interviews and you, you guys have to check them out. So I appreciate you being here with me today. Thank you for making your first debut on Texas oh. Wine and True Crime. Oh, what an honor. What an what honor. honor. We are huge fans. All right. Huge now we're going to go to Crime Con. Yes. Just because oh. we want to see you, Brandy. <laughs> yeah. And it's an honor.
Austin and Texas. Come on. Man, I love Austin. We are big amazing. It'll be nice and warm. It'll be June. We'll have pool time. All we'll right. have pool time. We're all in for that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, this has been fabulous. Thanks again, Brandy. This has been so fun. So guys, I'm going to go ahead and review. We always do a wine review at the end. And my friends over at Valley Mills Vineyards, I'm giving your rosé four corks today. That's right, four corks. If you like your little rosé on the drier side, perfect for this time of the year. I do taste both the melon and the grapefruit. And by the way, when I uncorked it and sniffed it, ugh. It was like summer. Texas, it's getting hot right now. I think we had like a cold front come through, so it made it 80 or something. I don't know. But not not your typical cold front in Boston, but it, it got a little chilly here. But it's already starting to feel like summer. Valley Mills Vineyards makes fine wines from 100% Texas-grown grapes. A great love for the viticulture underlies everything that they do. They opened in 2006, and you can visit them every day from 12 to 6 at their estate winery in Valley Mills, Texas. So go visit our friends in person or check them out on their website, valleymillsvineyards at yahoo.com. Shoot them an email. See if they can ship to where you are. Check out their website. They'd love to hear from you. And tell them your friends at Texas Wine and True Crime set you. They met us at the live event. So Laura, I had told you each and every week when we do our show, we always highlight an organization that just inspires us to be better people, to be givers. And I wanted you to do the honors and tell me what inspires you guys. And the one thing that you mentioned was autism. And instead of just an organization, we're actually going to highlight a fellow podcaster and a podcast that is raising awareness around autism. And this podcast is called Autism Rocks and Rolls Podcast. And I love the tagline, which is changing the world one episode at a time. So this guy is Sam Mitchell. He's a podcaster. He's a motivational speaker. He's an autistic advocate that focuses on the positive changes when it comes to the world of autism, whether in use or adults. And in his show, he combines the love that he has for rock and roll, which is awesome, with autism advocacy, education, and human interest stories. Do you guys want to say anything about Sam and his podcast? Sam, oh, Sam oh. rocks. Sam is just Sam and his mom, Gina. They're just friends, and we just absolutely adore them. Sam has amazing guests. Uh, I mean, he has NASCAR drivers and athletes and actors, all people who um, either are on the spectrum or have friends or loved ones on the spectrum. You know, talks to people about how they deal with this in their lives and can have great functional lives. And he's just, it's really, I mean, Sam inspires me every day. He's just, he's mm -hmm. such a hustler and he really is making his podcast happen and just showing that people on the spectrum can just really, and of all dis different disabilities, because he has people on other disabilities can just really live full, useful, wonderful lives. And we just really love Sam and Gina and want to advocate for his podcast. Well, this was the first time I had heard of Sam's podcast. So thank you for sharing that with me. And I'm glad we got to share that with our listeners. And I am such a big believer in the power of sharing, right? Sharing your life experiences because it can affect someone you know, or even someone you don't know, what's even makes it more special. Check out Sam's story. Check out his podcast. Again, it's Autism Rocks and Rolls podcast. And ladies, this has been an absolute pleasure. Wow, so we must, <laughs> we must do it again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to have you on our show next. Definitely. Oh, okay. Well, that will be so fun. Yeah, we're going to have to find another Texas case then for Brandy. Yes, we will. Yeah, yeah, well. we're going to, yeah. 
We will. Yeah. We're going to find a good one. There's no, well, crime. There's no crime in Texas, right? <laughs> not, yeah, I, I'm probably running out of material as we speak. You, you, know, have, to come to the, you have to come to the Ivy League <laughs> to find crime. You like, know. Where am I going to find another crime? The big... <laughs> Especially one that involves wine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right, ladies. Well, we always give a big cheers at the end of our show. So until next time, until next time, friends, stay safe, have fun, and cheers to next time. Cheers. Cheers. Murder, murder, murder.